Welcome to the Florida Specifier Podcast. This is Brett Cyphers here with my co-host, Ryan Matthews. If you like what you hear and want to support the show, please be sure to hit subscribe. And don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the Florida Specifier online at floridaspecifier.com. It's easy to do, and we think you'll enjoy all the ways you can read, watch, listen, and learn right at your fingertips. We can't thank you enough for the support. All right, Ryan. How are you doing, sir? I am good, Brett. Weather's turning a little bit chillier. It's nice. I got, uh, you know, kind of a hoodie on. Mm -hmm. Better than a suit, so doing well. Right. Yeah, I'm looking around the room here, and we have another friend of ours, uh, Mr. Ketchell, in the room. And looking around and not seeing suits for once is probably a nice feeling, but that's Friday in committee week, so. And Ketchell came with coffee. I know. (laughs) Which isn't bourbon, but it's something. Ryan, if I asked you what are some of the first things you think of when you hear wastewater, alternative water supplies, what comes to mind? I think it's probably Florida's recent evolution in wastewater treatment. I mean, you go back even 20, 30 years ago, you're talking much more regional package plants that had been utilized throughout the state. We've certainly, in the legislature, gone back and forth about whether or not to mandate AWT treatment standards for those individual wastewater systems. I think We've seen legislators grapple with what do we do with excess stormwater, wastewater, reclaimed water, et cetera, going back to Senate Bill 536 in 2013. Mm -hmm. So the last really 25 years, 20 years or so, we've had a significant focus on, uh, on wastewater treatment within the legislature. And about every other year, we get a fairly substantive piece of legislation that discusses that topic. So I'd say the evolution that we've seen over the last two decades or so. Yeah, I think it's because I'm older than you. I go back a little bit later with the things I remember because I I remember them now. And I think of Senate Bill 444, which is the Water Protection and Sustainability Program. That was, I think, 2004, 2005 territory. And it seemed like that was the time that we first started really thinking about incentivizing alternative water supplies. And back then, that meant reuse of wastewater and desal. And then really, I think as a part of that is is conservation. I remember your father played a huge role in the formation and success of that coming together because there were a lot of stakeholders involved in those days. It was pretty new. Can you educate our listeners who may not already know what that legislation created and why it's important? Sure. Senator Dockery from Lakeland actually spearheaded the Senate Bill 444. And what it did was created that Water Protection and Sustainability Trust Fund by mandating that the water management districts in their regional water supply plans look to alternative water supplies. And so the focus was A, funding. It was B, sort of a regional effort to capture alternative water supplies and create new water quantities. It appropriated $100 million in its first year. And the beauty of the program was that you generally saw about a seven to one return on investment from state dollars to water management district matching grant program funding, local government funding, et cetera. So, I mean, it really did create over the span of, I think the bill language initially said 10 years, 100 million that first year, and then about 60 million years two through 10, we were going to focus on alternative water supply funding, which was great. And then 2008 happened, and you started to see the legislature peel back uh, the funding they were putting towards the Water Protection Sustainability Trust Fund program for other measures, obviously. It's something that you and I talked about a lot when I was at DEP and you were at the Water Management District because the things that both my father before me and me were trying to vocalize to folks is if you can get a 7 or 8 to 1 ROI, 
we've got to invest more heavily in water quantities. Yeah, and I think a lot of people are having those conversations. I'm hearing a lot of them over the last couple of years, and not just because I'm partners with Frank Bernardino, and that's been his hobby horse for well over a decade now. It seems like people are really paying attention to it. I just want to rewind on what you were saying in terms of what happened in 2008, because it seems like we forgot all about it. The economy improved. We came out of that recessionary sort of period. The funding, the distribution all disappeared, not just from there, but also things like Florida Forever, right? Correct. And I mean, now is the time. And I know most recently in this legislative session, we've talked about how do you handle water supply funding from a state level perspective. I think there are plenty of people out there who feel that the quote unquote water project funding system that's currently in place by the legislature is a little disjointed. You've got multiple municipalities who are going after not only DEP grants, they're also going after legislative funding for those type of projects. We've always compared sort of the holy grail of the DOT five-year work program. If only we could get water funding in the state to look similar to that. You know, I think the only disadvantage you may have, or at least the advocacy that Frank and others are pushing to the legislature is our DOT five-year work program budget's $11 billion. You know, DEP's budget is still only $2 billion for all things, and the Everglades takes quite a big chunk of that. So I think funding's there. We had a $112 billion budget last year. Mm -hmm. So these past couple years, you've had a whole host of people going to the legislature to say, now's the time to look back at the Water Protection Sustainability Trust Fund program and maybe reinvigorate it. The state's taken some strides forward in the last couple of years. The subject of direct and indirect potable reuse. Can you talk a little bit about that and kind of where, you know, Florida's been and kind of where we're ending up? Because I think some of those things have been successes from the state level, maybe not so much, you know, when it gets down to the local. Sure. I, I think when you're talking about water quantity, you know, unfortunately, it takes a crisis for most people to understand or to act or to be proactive in that space. Thankfully, we're a peninsula state surrounded by water. We get significant rainfall each year. So it becomes a little bit tougher to get people to focus on water quantity issues in the state of Florida. Having said that, before with our work in the Central Florida Water Initiative, we are seeing the rapid decline of water availability in certain portions of the state because we have a large population incoming. Mm -hmm. The conversations that have been centered around both indirect and direct potable reuse have been contentious at times. I mean, you've got sort of the toilet-to-tap moniker on direct potable reuse that scares some people, and that narrative has taken hold not only at the local government level but at the state and federal level even. So we're not Texas. We're not Colorado. I mean, there's a pretty big distinction between eastern and and western water law, and thankfully we've got a couple guests who are going to be able to enumerate on that a a little bit better. So I think it's interesting to segue decently to see how how we're going to capture water quantities in a way that may not be offensive to Floridians. So here to help us understand how recent policy advancements are having an impact on developers, utilities, and regulators is John Bell. John is Chief Commercial Officer and co-founder of Greater Water Systems. John lives in Ocala and has been actively involved in the water conservation and gray water recycling industry since 2009. He's also a former sports broadcaster with over a decade of television experience, which includes hosting World's Greenest Homes on HGTV. John is joined today by noted water attorney James Eklund. James leads the water and natural resources practices at the Sherman and Howard Law Firm. He served as Colorado's lead negotiator and signatory on the Colorado River Drought Contingency Plan, 
director of the Colorado Water Conservation Board, and was the architect of Colorado's Water Plan, the largest civic engagement process in state history. If that wasn't enough, he also served as legal counsel to Colorado's governor and teaches at the University of Colorado Denver School of Public Affairs and the University of Denver, my alma mater. John and James, thank you for joining us on the show. John, let's start with you. You're a Floridian now, but tell listeners about yourself. <laughs> You've got a background that's a little out of the ordinary for our line of work. Yeah, it's a, it's a recent Floridian, and I'm so stoked to be in the United States of America and Florida with a Social Security number and a green card now. <laughs> uh, and Don't count t- on that Social Security, <laughs> uh, though. And it's a non-traditional path. I mean, like even sitting here with you two today, it's kind of crazy considering, you know, what you guys have done in the state and uh, how long you've been involved in, you know, environmental and water law. But I'm a former sportscaster. I mean, I went to school for it. I dreamed of doing it. I loved it. I did it for about 10 years. And then I sort of had this early midlife crisis. And I'm like, I don't want to be the dad that's not home at dinner. So, you know, you work weekends as the weekend anchor. You work four to midnight. You travel a lot. And I'm like, I got to I gotta reinvent myself. So I jumped into construction. Many people shook their head. What are you doing? I took a 60% pay cut, no company car, no clothing allowance. And I knew nothing about construction. But I took a carpentry course, and I basically said to the instructor, I'm honest, I'm on time, and I'm hardworking. And he said, you're hired. <laughs> so I went up the ranks of construction and learned how to build, obviously. But at that time, construction shows were popping up all the time. And I still had an interest in TV. I wanted to do movies and host. And so my life-changing moment was in 2009. No question about it. I hosted a show called World's Greenest Homes. I traveled the world with the team. And everywhere we went, someone was doing something with water. You know, you're either harvesting energy or you're reusing water. And that was outside of North America, right? Not commonplace back here at that time. So I came home. Met a buddy of mine. He wanted to get in the clean tech space. He said, what do you think about reuse? I said, find a technology. I'm in. He found another guy. And in the world of entrepreneurship, this is, this is how you learn. We, we got involved with a company that didn't have a very good technology, but they were the pioneers in reuse and residential construction at that time. They went out of business, and the three of us formed Greater in 2012. Since then, it's been a crash course on NBA, raising capital, uh, legislative discussions. But we all had the same thought. It is crazy to flush toilets with drinking water. That's what our mantra was. And there wasn't an appliance in a home that could do it. And so 11 years later, you know, we're sitting here in a state that is probably, in my opinion, the most progressive when it comes to legislative incentives for residential reuse in North America. And I think it's really because water is the fabric of Floridians. I mean, it really is. It's essential. So I'm thrilled to be a part of this discussion. Should we talk a little bit about the technology before we go to James? Or let's talk to you first, Jim, because you've been on the phone waiting for us to get to you. I've read every part of your bio, and if I read it out loud, all the things I thought were impressive in there, we wouldn't have time to do a show. Where are you from, and how did you get here with John? Thanks for the invitation to be on the show and for the question. I'm a fifth-generation Coloradan, originally from the western slope of Colorado, which is, if, you, if you're imagining our rectangular state and you draw a line right down the middle of it, that's representative of the Continental Divide. And the Continental Divide that bifurcates our state has distinction of making it so that western side of our state uh, receives 80% of our precipitation and 90% of our population or more resides on the eastern side of that line. So 
I grew up on the western side of the line where the water is, and now I'm raising three kids, and my wife and I live on the eastern side of that line. And it really makes you appreciate the state that you live in when you've got that kind of dual experience. And I started on the western slope, but I've lived in almost every major river basin in the state at last check. So I'm thoroughly Colorado kid and can go into more detail if you want it, but that's it in a nutshell. The one part I'm most interested in maybe getting a little from you is folks here in Florida kind of understand how we deal with water here. If you looked at places out west, the way that you treat the use of water could seem absolutely foreign to folks in Florida. Can you talk a little bit about that kind of setup out west, whether it be Colorado, New Mexico, California, et cetera, in terms of how water is apportioned, and then just a, a hair of your involvement in working to solve some of those problems out there. You bet. So I'll ask your listeners to imagine another line, and that's a line that bifurcates the country called the 100th Meridian. Essentially, it's a line, if you drew it straight through the middle of Kansas, north to south, Canada, all the way down to Mexico, that line has been the demarcation between the arid zone and the east of that line. You can grow crops without irrigating them. So if you're west of that line, you have to irrigate things in order for them to grow. That line with climate change has been creeping to the east quite a bit lately in the last 20 to 50 years. It means that the way we do things out here on the western side of that line has to be different from a water law and policy perspective than the way it is east of that line. Because you have to have water for things to grow west of the line. We needed something different than the system of water law that we adopted from British common law was the riparian system. And it's the system that operates essentially east of the Mississippi, east of that line. When you get out here in the West, we had no ability to really have every landowner that needed water on the river. They had land, but they didn't have access to water. And under the riparian system, you really need to own land next to the river or next to the water supply that you're trying to access. So we had to have a different way of doing it. What we came up with was this doctrine of prior appropriation. That just means it's a fancy $5 lawyer phrase for first in time, first in right. So all of our water rights out here are dependent or they're, they hinge on the date those water rights were put to use. That's the real distinction between the way we do it out here in the West and the way you all do it out East that gives rise to the water policy differences that you were alluding to. My uh, involvement in that is I've been a water attorney here for the bulk of my career in different capacities. Most of my professional life has been with the state of Colorado. And then in 2017, I got to move over and start practicing private sector law. Water law has been you know, really a, an important touch point for me in understanding my state's history and the history of the West in general because it really does explain a lot of the policy and the water uh, use, what we incentivize, what we really want to drive hard at is doing more with less out here. That's the challenge we face. We don't have a water problem in the West 
places like Mercury, Venus, Mars, they have water problems. Uh, we, we, we on planet Earth, even in the arid west, we have a water management problem. And if we manage it correctly, we can get the uses that we need to see and we can have the development that we need to have and the economic benefits of, of that are what you see driving our economies out here. But if we don't manage it wisely, if we don't innovate, we're going to have a situation where it really becomes a zero-sum game. If I use more, you, someone has to use less. Right. That's just not going to get it done. So you know, my, my eyes light up when I see innovation in the water use space that comes along, and it doesn't come along often, but when it does, I try and grab hold with both hands because it's the kind of thing that we need to be doing and incentivizing and doing at a more rapid clip than we've ever done in our history. So it gets me excited to get up in the morning and get to talk to people like John Bell. This podcast is brought to you by Anfield Consulting, the leading boutique firm specializing in legislative agency and local government affairs with a strong emphasis on environmental advocacy. With a distinguished team spanning law, science, planning, and politics, Anfield Consulting brings decades of experience to the table, making them your trusted partner in navigating the complexities of government regulation and legislation. What sets Anfield Consulting apart is their impressive track record. They've consistently secured legislative approvals and vital funding for water, wastewater, flood control, and environmental restoration projects. Their dedication has positioned them as true leaders in the environmental advocacy sector, making them a driving force for positive change. When it comes to achieving your environmental goals, Anfield Consulting offers more than just advice. They provide unparalleled support. Their team's experience-based guidance ensures your objectives align seamlessly with the evolving landscape of environmental regulations. So, if you're looking for a dedicated partner to transform your environmental aspirations into tangible results, connect with them today by visiting AnfieldFlorida.com. Anfield Consulting, shaping the future of legislative, agency, and environmental advocacy. I guess I can see why you and John are friends. They've become pretty obvious there. How did you and John actually end up meeting? So we were introduced to each other through a colleague. I used to work at a big international law firm. It had 46 offices in 20 countries. In the spirit of Charles Barkley and John Bell being a uh, sports broadcaster, <laughs> I'll use his line, no free pub, so I won't mention which firm. But, <laughs> but uh, the, the reality is that they, uh, John and his co-founders, went to the firm's DC offices to ask about what their entree into the U.S. market would look like. And I was this new to the firm water lawyer that was out west, it was a natural introduction for them to make to me. And when I migrated away from the firm and started my own shop back during the pandemic, and then eventually found my way to Colorado's oldest law firm, which is more of a regional firm, Sherman and Howard, I uh, got to continue my work with, with John. He saw fit to continue to work with me and, and my state, I should say, you know, out here in the west, Water policy gets really emotional and people get all worked up pretty quick about it. It means that the wheels grind slowly sometimes, sometimes a lot 
more slowly than we want them to or need them to to innovate on the time frame on the time scale that we've got to play with it takes patience it's taken immense amounts of patience from uh, john and greater to a lot of patience you know, <laughs> a lot of patience here. james i mean the reality yeah. if i could just jump yeah. in is when we started this company we thought colorado is going to be the champion of reuse and we're jumping in and when we sort of got involved it was not permitted and it wasn't really permitted until 2015 and Colorado is the most complicated state in the United States, and that's why we need James in our life because, first of all, they have a, a regulation called Reg 86. It's a county ordinance that needs to be adopted before gray water can be even permitted, never mind what the code says, where in Florida, it's in the code, you're good to go. And then you've got water rights, and then you've got water laws, and then you've got one-time right uses of certain water, like CBT water. So in the West... There is no way of navigating the complexity of just what you're allowed to do with water, even though everybody agrees it just makes sense. So James is critical to Greater's life uh, in the West, for sure. Well, John, let's talk a little bit about your work with Greater in Florida, right? Because we've got a pretty constantly changing landscape about public policy. Our regulatory environment, I think, is ripe for innovation. So how are you guys inserting yourself into the conversation here in Florida? I almost get emotional about it. I mean, Florida has embraced me personally, my family, my life, but our company and our really, it's the innovation, it's the industry. It's, it's not just about greater, it's about water reuse in general. And two significant bills have been passed in the last few years. And the first one was SB 64 in 2021. Because I'll put my builder hat back on. Builders need to be rewarded essentially for good behavior. I mean, that's really what it comes down to, right? And land is key. So if builders can move more land, they will adopt solutions like gray water. So in 2021, a density bill was passed where 35% more allocations are allowed to a builder if they put a gray water system in 100% of their homes and a 25% allocation if it's in 25%, 25 homes or more. So it's really after new construction, large scale development. But imagine if a builder could build 35 more homes per hundred. Florida's got a huge housing crunch maybe the fastest growing state, how are you going to grow as fast as you need and then worry about the resources that are you know, below the ground? And so Florida was very forward thinking about that as let's pass a density bill and try to move the industry. And then this past session, again, you need another carrot and you need to bridge the gap because the density bill takes two to three to four years before you'll see a movement for the industry because you've got to go in before entitlement, right? And it takes years to go through infrastructure before you go vertical. And then this past session, a tax credit was passed. So it's up to 50% of the cost, which is $4,200, a cap of $2 million per builder. So if you're filing a corporate tax return and you were a builder, you get 50% of the cost essentially covered. And that'll help move the industry. So Florida's looked at it so progressive, in my opinion, for residential reuse as a sector, saying, look, let's give density and let's give a tax credit. And we are trying to use that model. We're going west, right? Because it's just a great model. Talk about that payoff on the taxpayer side of things. Talk about what they get on the other end in terms of the benefit of the technology itself. We look at, we have three sort of key stakeholders. It's the builder, it's the municipality slash water utility, the end user. At the end of the day, the end user benefits because they're reducing their indoor consumption between 20 or 25%. So they're saving on their water bill immediately, immediate payback because systems will go installed as part of the build. 
Water now, as you both know, is relatively inexpensive in the state of Florida. Water connection fees are relatively inexpensive. Where James is, builders are paying between twenty-five and sixty thousand for a tap fee because he said all the water's on the wrong side where all the people wow. are. The payback immediate for homeowners because we're trying to drive incentives that will get the technology installed. And then the payback almost immediate for a builder if they're getting 35 more homes per hundred because now they're selling houses. And then we say the payback immediate for a municipality because they're not paying for it, right? And they're reducing the water in and the water out. And as you both know, sanitary is sometimes a bigger challenge for municipalities. So we always look at it as everybody wins. Right. Everyone wins right away. So we talked about, again, the use of alternative water supply, right? Technologies like gray water can benefit the municipality who's going to have to eliminate in their entirety eventually their surface water discharge of wastewater. Not only with your technology, but your work here. How do those two things sort of comport with each other? It's all about reducing outflows, right? I mean, that's the end of the day. And the one thing I've learned in Florida too is like, it rains a lot here, right? So the challenge is, is we're not capturing and reusing that water or storage storing it as well as we could. So again, the commercial opportunity on the storm side is massive and storm ponds are extremely inefficient ways for builders to manage water on site. They're costly. They become a construction, you know, debris zone. You've got to manage and maintain it. So if you're talking about the discharge that you can reduce, you want to obviously capture and reuse it. And then it's the same thing on reducing your effluent, your outflow. If you can reduce the flow to municipalities, sanitary systems has significant impacts, especially when you're dealing with, I mean, it's hard to get into this numbers, but a GHG component, an energy component. I mean, you've got lift stations, you're moving water up and down to a wastewater facility, and then it's got to go somewhere, and then you got to bring it back, treat it, and bump it. The whole reuse side on that is a massive opportunity. Yeah, I think that's what, you know, the point that you're getting to as well, Ryan. And Ryan represents a number of local governments and associations that deal with the problems, the challenges that go with not just that legislation, but even that was passed this past year with House Bill 1379, the capacity. Capacity in wastewater treatment systems costs a lot of money. And some of these smaller governments, I, you know, I think of greater and that gray water reuse potential. That's what I'm thinking of is you give a little bit more room to some of these small municipalities and others to have a little more time to plan and fund these upgrades. The challenges, as you both know, too, on the sort of utility side is you're looking at it on this supply in as your cost. But if you're not also treating the water, you're forgetting about the cost out. And so give or take, residential reuse systems are using 175, 200 kilowatt hours to move and treat, you know, 10,000 gallons of water of savings in and out. It could probably be done more efficiently in a home then moving that 10,000 gallons when you got to go through lift stations, you've got uh, an old infrastructure system that might be leaking water. So now you got to move water back up that you're losing. So if you can do it in that decentralized approach, there's, there's definitely some upside. And that's a conversation that Floridians certainly these days would embrace, right? Because we're a state that's heavily dependent on natural gas to run our utility systems, our electric infrastructure. The price of natural gas obviously fluctuates. So anytime that there are efficiencies in both the water conservation space and the energy space, it's a win-win. Yeah. 100%. 100%. I'm interested, other than Florida and Colorado, where are you guys really inserting yourself and becoming part of this conversation across the United States? We look at it as the big six. It's really on the east. It's Florida and Georgia. 
those two states are well documented. They've had some water wars. Right? We've got we've got our thoughts on the state of Georgia, <laughs> yeah, don't we, Brett? There's a lake up there, I think, that uh, had some challenges. Um, but we look at it as this: like, it's where's the growth? Where's the infrastructure challenges? Where's the water cost issues? Where's the sanitary capacity issues? Where are the builders building? They're building in Florida, Georgia, California, Arizona, Colorado, and Texas as the big six. So that's kind of where Greater is focused heavily on, and we started in Florida. It's a niche industry right now, but you know, I've been at it for 12 years, and there were days where I didn't think we'd be at it, that we'd be out of business. I've never been more confident in the time that I've been involved with Crater, and I truly believe there will be certain regions where builders will not be able to build without a water offset. It doesn't have to be just about Crater. It'll be about, hey, reduce your consumptive use by 30 to 50%, and if you don't, you can't build. Like even in Pasco County, right, Zephyr Hills has had some water challenges, potentially slowing down growth. It's going to happen where you don't think water is an issue, like in Florida, right? Yeah, and I think uh, West Central Florida, that being part of it, Pasco, and I look out at Polk County and the challenges that they have moving forward, the Central Florida Water Initiative area, which is almost the entirety of that Central Florida area, is trying to figure out how to create enough water in that pie for not just what exists now, but for that growth. And I think there's a real renaissance right now. There seemed to be a doldrum for a while in terms of new technology, creative thinking when it came to increasing that water pie, and we go to the old standards. It's like, I like the idea that this technology exists, and I hope that people really look at these sorts of things, like these residential gray water systems, to help move us in, you know, in that direction that we need to in terms of sustaining the growth that we're facing. John and James, how can folks get in touch with you if they'd like to find out how you can help them? You go first, James. You're above me on education. <laughs> Not even close. <laughs> well, you can reach out to me. I'm at Sherman and Howard is the oldest law firm in Colorado. So it's a Google search away. And my email there is jeckland, and that's E-K-L-U-N-D at shermanhoward.com. And I'll give my uh, personal cell phone. There you go. <laughs> uh, it's a give US... Ketchels, too. Give okay, Ketchels out Ketchels. to all I just got rid of my Canadian cell phone, so I'm now fully transplanted here. Uh, 386-600-9936, and it's jbell at greater.com, and greater is G-R-E-Y-T-E-R. Perfect. And we will put all of your contact info in the website in the episode notes as well, so folks can find it there. John and James, we appreciate you being on the show this morning. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for your time, guys. Really appreciate it. Just thanks. Thanks for listening to the Florida Specifier podcast. We appreciate your support. Production of this podcast is by Carl Sorn and David Barfield at Lonely Fox Studios. A special thank you goes out to the Bagels and Biscuits, who were kind enough to let us use their music for the show. Check them out wherever you get your music. If you have an idea for an article for the Specifier or topic for this podcast, please be sure to let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Join us next time as we continue to delve into the issues, policy, and people that environmental professionals and policymakers want to know about. And that's it. For Ryan Matthews, I'm Brad Cyphers. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.